Good morning. Uh, welcome to uh, uh, class under uh, COVID-19. Um, I want to welcome all of you who are here from the uh, from my class, uh, as well as all of those who might be joining us along the way uh, that maybe you haven't had a chance to be part of this. Uh, I wanted to take just a second before we get started, though, to be able to let you know kind of what we've been doing and, and what this is. Uh, this particular class has been uh, rolling for about 20 years. Uh, we're building on the great work done by uh, Brother Mark Ogletree, uh, now uh, teaching at BYU. Uh, I've been, it's been my pleasure to teach this class for about the last uh, 11 years, I think. Um, and, and the beauty of, of what we do, we've been meeting on Monday mornings at 9.30, um, in the uh, Plano, Texas uh, Stake Center uh, for the last while. The beauty of what we do is that we have a chance in this setting to kind of set our own pace a little bit. Um, we're able to take um, as many classes as the classes that we want to teach, go as slow as we want to teach, and that is fantastic, I have to tell you. Uh, the ability, for instance, uh, when we did uh, the Book of Mormon a couple of years ago, we took two and a half years working our way thro slowly through it. Uh, last year at this time, uh, we had a chance to do about a year and a half on the Joseph Smith papers. Uh, that's about uh, 60 some odd classes uh, on the Joseph Smith papers. Uh, all of these classes are, uh, the audio for them is posted on uh, at kevinhinkley.com if you want to be able to, to view that. But uh, this is our traditional time. It's 9.30 on a Monday morning in Texas and, and we have a chance. Normally we would be in a great chapel and, and now you're sitting at your desk and you're sitting on your, wherever you are uh, watching what we're doing. This is the amazing part of uh, the technology that we're working with. Now, I do want to say also that uh, one of the things that uh, we've been able to do also, this is our traditional after-conference class where we like to take a few minutes uh, to be able to talk about what happened in class and or in uh, conference. Um, and normally we would have a nice little discussion back and forth before we get into our discussion that we're going to be talking today about Paul. Um, but as we're looking at what happened uh, at conference yesterday uh, when President Nelson said this was going to be historic, uh, he wasn't messing around. Uh, this was historic for a lot of reasons. We know that it's the first time we've ever had general conference uh, coming from an empty auditorium with just the brethren sitting um, miles apart from each other as they had a chance to talk. Um, that was an amazing experience, though, to watch that. So as, as we're looking at those things that we heard and those impressions that we had, uh, as you're watching this, uh, Facebook Live uh, class, you can actually be able to uh, put some comments in there about what your reaction was uh, to what you heard and those things that touched you uh, deeply. Um, now, 
for me in this setting then um, I get a chance to kind of give you some of my impressions about uh, what I heard. First of all I thought it was interesting that um, Wow, that from a kind of amateur study of biblical history, uh, I loved, loved hearing how often we referred to the fact uh, that uh, yesterday, the week before Easter, was Palm Sunday. It's that, it's that chance that we have to recognize um, uh, the entrance of the Savior into Jerusalem. Uh, either coming through the beautiful gate, which is the traditional idea, uh, or the possibility suggested by a lot that he came around to the north and came in uh, through the sheep gate uh, that would lead directly to uh, the the slaughtering area in the temple. But this is Palm Sunday. Yesterday was Palm Sunday, as as his believers got to wave palm fronds and and welcome him in. Uh, it had to be uh, a joyous moment for them uh, and for a lot of the other uh, uh, Jews from all over the dysphoria, all over Mesopotamia that had come in to celebrate Passover to wonder who is this man and what are we celebrating and how come, how come we're giving him a kingly uh, welcome that all, all only comes to kings in this setting. What I love about that, though, is that, wow, that we were, along with all other Christians, we were recognizing Palm Sunday, something that traditionally as Latter-day Saints we haven't really done. On top of that, though, we had an understanding that we could invite him in, Hoshana, uh, come save us come in and in that Hoshana we were able to administer the Hoshana shout that, that Hosanna shout reinstituted in the Kirtland temple and at temple dedications and solemn assemblies for new prophets and scripture and we had a chance on the 200th anniversary to say Hoshana save us come in with us and we will do it with the waving of white handkerchiefs, symbolic of those palm fronds that were that were celebrated, so uh, we had a chance to celebrate with all of Christianity Palm Sunday, with with our unique uh, revelation that enables us to to have maybe a little bit more insight into maybe what it is that we were actually doing. I was amazed by how often uh, the brethren themselves described this as Holy Week, leading to Good Friday and then to Easter. And that as part of Hoshana on Sunday, now we're going to have um, a fast for the current virus on Friday, but we're going to do it on Good Friday, the traditional day where the where the gift that we're going to talk so much today about, the, that gift was given. And it began, but it began with, this, with the suffering of the Son. And as part of that process, salvation was going to be able to come to all. Wow. And, we did, and so on this Friday, on Good Friday, we're going to unite ourselves together and invite the Lord's intervention 
into this crisis. Uh, off time, he has to wait for our free agency to kick in, and we need to be able to ask and plead, and his response is going to be there. Uh, and again, we'll talk about that in just a minute, how that the grace contract that we're going to be uh, spending so much time on today. But uh, we're going to be able to do that on Friday and unite ourselves together. And not only are we inviting his intervention into everything that we're doing, but we're also going to be able to sanctify ourselves and unite ourselves, which is really fascinating, isn't it? That we're going to unite ourselves all in our different shelter-in-place spots all over the world, uh, all fasting together, uh, united, even though we're temporarily separated from each other. That uniting, that bonding, and the power that comes from united prayer, a united plead that unlocks all of what the Lord really would like to do, I think, is to, what is to mediate suffering and the pain that he has to see and has to be watching on a regular basis. And that's got to be, uh, that's got to be tough for the Lord. Uh, and then obviously the 200th anniversary of commemorating uh, that marvelous first vision experience, that theophany that comes to prophets um, like uh, Lehi and Paul and Jacob and all of those and Lehi, those that have had those kind of um, heavenly experiences that call them to do something. Well, 200 years ago that, that young boy was flooded. We talked last week in our class about it was, it was a very traumatic moment for him to, to have that experience that would have played all kinds of hooky with his memory, that as he went on in his life, certain moments would have come back to him, certain parts of that. There's no way that his mortal mind could have absorbed everything that happened in that setting. And we talked about that's why there's four different versions and five minor versions. Uh, and some of that would come back to him depending on his audience and his age and who he was writing to and, and all of that. Now, each one of us in those moments, though, we have our... Um, as we're listening to, to conference, we have the moments um, that touch us. Those moments, those talks, those experiences that affect us the, the way that we do. And, and for me, as it might have been for you, no surprise, um, that for me the one that touched closest where my feelings were and the things that I struggled with obviously was, was Elder Holland. Jeffrey Holland seemed to understand both the, the restoration moment that we were having the commemoration of that, but also the the virus that has divided the world and has is caused so much pain and misery so far, and threatens to disrupt our life for quite a while going into uh, the future. And he seemed to meld those two together under hope to give us some idea of the hope that exists. Uh, for us. Um, along with that, I was also incredibly touched uh, by Sister Bingham's uh, talk 
about the power of women and and the importance of a unitedness of women and an equal partnership that they had. Uh, she talked about how they had access to the priesthood through heaven and through their covenants um, and that that meant an equal partnership uh, with with their husbands, with their families, with um, with anybody that they would come in contact with. And I think she recognizes, as we have talked about many times in our class, that by my estimation, only about a, th a quarter of uh, women in the church have, act have an active priesthood holder in their home. The vast majority of sisters um, struggle to find strength and power and connection with the, the priesthood without living with one in their home. Uh, so her powerful address about their access to priesthood um, uh, that didn't necessarily involve having a man right there. I think she's I think she's trying to raise the level of awareness and recognize for instance the the power of Mother Eve and if you really listen to Mother Eve's um, conversations and her understanding she takes a leading role in so many aspects of the the fortunate fall that occurred and Adam recognized her power and her strength and I believe treated her uh, as an equal partner in the whole uh, plan of salvation enterprise. So Sister Bingham I also thought brought a certain measure of in this time of struggle do we have the ability to to draw on the power that will bring us hope and enable us to uh, make it through all of the challenges that that uh, remain ahead of us. Now, again, as you're as you're watching this, and and have a chance to comment, perhaps on the Facebook page, uh, please bring please. Uh, Mention those things that touched you, that that gave you ideas and hope and and uh, confidence as you go as we now enter into Holy Week uh, that Jesus entered in on Sunday. Uh, it will culminate in Good Friday. Uh, that was a horrible Friday, obviously for him, but for the world, it began one of the greatest moments uh, in in the history of creation about what needed to happen and fulfilled everything that the Savior said that he would do in the pre-existence. Uh, that is, that's the, the wonderful moment. So, well, um, conference came at the right time, uh, at a time when we needed this kind of uh, love and support and counsel um, and, and drive as we kind of go forward into this next few weeks, uh, whatever that will end up being uh, for us. Now, so again, put your comments down. Uh, we'll have a chance to have a discussion online, uh, and, and you can give your impressions about how all that works. Now, as we, uh, uh, as we get uh, started today with uh, our class, here's, uh, again, by way of setup, for those of you who haven't been with us all along, here's what, here's what we've tried to do. Um, we've really been talking uh, a lot about the importance of the Apostle Paul 
Um, now, one of the, uh, I heard a, uh, a minister the other day um, who was talking about the fact, and I think he was right, um, that he said for a lot of uh, reformed evangelical Christians that they tended to look into the, the Pauline epistles, the writing of Paul, because that's where their theology was, and that's, what, that's where their belief was. And he said, what we, uh, what we do is we read the, the, the epistles of Paul, and we love those things. He says, and then we drop into the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we get little stories out of there, but Paul makes more sense to us because Jesus is recommending baptism and the Beatitudes and things that they need to do. And Paul is talking about faith and, and being saved by faith and saved by grace uh, that we're going to be talking about. And there's a certain extent for us as Latter-day Saints, we very much do that thing. For instance, with studying the, the New Testament especially the Gospels. We love the Gospels. But then we put our toe in the Old Testament and we go, ah, let's reach in, pull in the story of Daniel or David and Goliath um, or, or those things. We're going to bring them out. We will use them as object lessons and then we'll quickly put them back, close the door. We don't want to go too much into the Old Testament. It kind of freaks us out because um, we don't always understand what's going on there. Um, so when we get to the New Testament, we go, yeah, we love the Gospels. That's cool. We love this stuff. Uh, the Pauline epistles are tough, and we're not quite sure what Romans means or Ephesians or 1 Corinthians. Let's go in and grab, uh, you know, uh, out of Ephesians that apostles and prophets are important, and we'll pull those out. Or we'll go into 1 Corinthians uh, 15 and we'll go ah, oh, see baptism for the dead we'll pull that stuff out bring it out there and then close the door on the rest of the Pauline epistles um, now part of the problem with that has been uh, that over the over the uh, the centuries of the church the the Bible for that first generation of the church especially was the King James Version uh, beautiful inspired poetic and and still the official version uh, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints however there is a there's a, a change coming that has become more and more apparent over time um, and that is that uh, for instance um, we're getting we're fast getting to the point where the vast uh, majority of the church does not use the King James version if you are Spanish and you're going to get the Spanish version of the LDS scriptures or Portuguese or German, you're not getting the King James Version translated into Spanish. The church is, is purchasing other more uh, common language Bibles for, uh, in Spanish, in Portuguese. Um, so the more and more the church for all the wonderful history that the King James Version was for us, is not using it. And, and in fact, to be able to unlock, as we have been doing, the journeys of Paul, to talk about the importance of Paul uh, and what he wrote and what he said and what he believed, um, 
We've actually been reaching out in this in this class to try and utilize what we have from the King James, uh, but. For instance, we have been using uh, quite a bit. This is <laughs> it's kind of beat up now. It's my copy of Thomas Wayman's uh, The New Testament, A Translation for Latter-day Saints that just came out uh, this year. What uh, Brother Wayman at BYU did was go to the original Greek, and he's translating from the original Greek and then putting it in the language of that Greek um, so that suddenly... Romans opens up to us and makes sense and Ephesians uh, breathes and Galatians gets to be uh, where Paul was at that time and the love that emanates out of 1 Thessalonians um, it had to be that way we've also used um, I use the NRSV uh, as well if I'm not sure so between these uh, we're trying to be able to get uh, the the journeys of Paul, uh, and be, but be able to see his writings in his language and in language that they would have understood. That unlocks this. Uh, I think it was Brother Wayman himself that that said, uh, "A, if he were and, and um, Robert Millet has said the same thing. If they were, if they all could only choose one book in the Scriptures, what would they choose?" And they have both said, Romans, we would take Romans. That would be the book we would want. Uh, if, that, if we only had one book of scripture. We say, well, why would that be? Have you ever tried to read Romans? Uh, that's worse than Isaiah. Uh, why would we do Romans? Um, and, and yet, when, as we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks, as we're going to kind of go through Ephesians and then Romans, if we're able to see it in the language in which it was spoken, in the context in which it was spoken, suddenly these beautiful books just open up and you get to see Paul's thinking and his magnificent thought process. Um, you also get to see, and this is going to be part of what we're going to talk about today, you also get to see Paul's growth. You get to see Paul growing over time the same way that Joseph Smith's theology expanded and grew as he had more understanding so did Paul Paul had to come from one place of strict obedience to the law and then trying to sw switch that strict obedience over to um, when he was understanding the gospel and then after his Ephesians prison experience we talked uh, two weeks ago about uh, Paul's Liberty Jail experience that just changed him and impacted him. Now as he grows and he develops, his theology goes with him and he get this expanded view of, of things that is magnificent to watch. Um, and we're going to spend in the next couple of classes, we're going to take some time looking at Ephesians, and then we're going to examine the marvelous document that is Romans, uh, that he wrote to a group he hadn't even been to yet. And he just kind of like sending messages ahead that they can read uh, in the churches there in Rome, uh, delivered by a woman that would read those in the churches uh, for him. And we want to be able to understand Ephesians and Romans in the language in which they got it. And, and hopefully we'll be able to, to do that. Now, that said, um, let's talk about, 
let's get to what we, we what we really wanted to to get to uh, today. Um, one of the it's obvious that one of the theological divides that forever and ever has separated Latter Day Saint tradition from the tra- from the other faith traditions sitting over here inside Christianity, um, and one of the the starkest uh, polemics that goes on between the two, which in some ways, as we're going to talk about, is a false dichotomy. It's not we set this up. It's not we. It's not true the way we have it set up. Uh, I certainly remember as a as a, a missionary, and even not that long ago, going out with the missionaries, and we had this conversation uh, with a, a wonderful couple. And, and the battle that, that we were fighting was that battle between salvation. Is it faith or is it works? How are we saved? How does it, how does it come? How does it occur? Um, and again, the, if, you're, if you're looking in the Pauline epistles, and they're talking about, he's talking about faith, and he's drawing on the idea of grace. And he's saying we are saved by grace, not by works, lest any man should boast. We're, we're not saved by our works, what uh, N.T. Wright would call our works contract. Uh, we're not saved by that. Um, and so if I believe and I make my altar call uh, and I go down and I confess Jesus that I've received grace... I've received salvation, and for a lot of faith traditions, that means you can't lose grace. Once saved, always saved. You, you've arrived. Um, now, for, for years as um, Latter-day Saints, we have battled and fought that and said, no, no, there, there works. Don't, don't you realize that? And then it say that we're supposed to be baptized, and if a man isn't baptized, he can't enter. Well, that's, he, he has to do something, um, not just confess Jesus. Um, and then we're talking about the, uh, the obedience and the, the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that stuff and the things that we're supposed to do? And, and then here's our obedience, and, and then we have to keep the commandments, and the Book of Mormon says that there will be a judgment day. And we're going to be judged according to our works, not just our faith. So we have pushed back and said, no, salvation comes by way of works, uh, and that we have to be obedient because there's a judgment day to see how we did on our works. Uh, and, and so for those that just kind of confess kind of a born-again uh, once saved, always saved. Grace is overly simplistic. It's easy grace. Uh, we're not into that. We don't like that. Uh, we'll push back against you on that. Um, now, so uh, within uh, LDS versus traditional Christianity, there has been this tension uh, between grace and works. And at the center of this has been Paul. And, and Paul talking eloquently about the importance of grace and the deadness of the law and, and that we accept Christ in and that he is lifting us. Um, and so that's where a lot of our confusion has ended up being, this, this back and forth dichotomy between the two. Um, now, as I looked at this, I thought, 
because uh, this is a false, it's a false all or nothing kind of thing. We're going to find out in just a second that uh, yes, we are saved by grace. But what, what does grace mean? Uh, and perhaps it was best put years ago by Hugh Nibley, uh, who wrote a wonderful article, St. Hugh Nibley, the patron saint of BYU, um, who, taught, who wrote a wonderful piece called uh, Work We Must, But the Lunch is Free. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, work we must, but salvation is free. And, and, and let's, let's talk about that. Um, so, let me let me back up then, um, and and for those of, those of you in the class, um, I was able uh, I sent out the the PowerPoint that um, that we usually do to to have this class and and by the way if if you ultimately after viewing some of this if you'd like to get the PowerPoint I usually send it out on Sunday night uh, just go to kevinhinkley.com. You can you can uh, sign up for the the uh, institute, um, the adult institute. Sign up uh, to receive uh, uh, updates as to what we're going to receive. And I always send out the PowerPoint the night before. Uh, so the um, as as we look at it, we need to we need to first of all understand, and and we're going to focus today almost exclusively on uh, this idea of basically what is grace because the understanding of grace is what will ultimately provide the bridge between what everybody else has believed and what we believe and we find out we're actually kind of on the same page. Um, so we're going to talk in, in great depth today about grace. Now, let me start off by going into the Old Testament. The word uh, grace is used in the Old Testament, and it would be good for us to know and to understand what that meant in the Old Testament. Uh, when, when the Old Testament uh, uses, when writers in the Old Testament refer to grace, uh, and by the way, I'm, I'm indebted to a number of wonderful authors that have, that have provided uh, uh, information on this. I wish I could say I made this up. I didn't. They got there long before I did and have done a wonderful job. Um, the idea of grace in the Old Testament, the, um, the word actually for grace, uh, one, of, one of the forms of it, also of loving kindness and charity, in the Old Testament is the word Han. And what did Han suggest? Well, when you find grace in the Old Testament, here, here is their understanding. And this is the understanding that permeates ultimately to the ancient Greeks uh, as well. Uh, Han uh, suggests that uh, grace itself is a gift. It's an endowment of a gift, uh, and it's, it's given uh, from one person to another. And it's given by somebody who on one side has something that the other side doesn't have. Uh, 
So what, what are they going to do? They're going to provide a gift, an endowment that will provide the needs to someone else on the other side. Now, so number one, it's given. Number two, it has to be received by the one receiving the gift. It has to be received. And ultimately there is a number three, and this becomes so important in our discussion, and it'll be critical for Paul. Uh, number three is, is the giving back uh, of something that it was received, that, that the receiver is going to somehow give something back. Uh, and, and it's this process of giving, receiving, and returning that this whole process represents grace. And the idea of grace is that it, it then forms a covenant, a contract. And between the giver and the receiver, there now exists a very sacred bond. It's not band, it's bond. <laughs> there exists a, there, as a bond, and that's how relationships form. It is the receiver, it's the giver that had the benefactor who has something that the receiver doesn't have. The, the, the benefactor is going to give something to the receiver who then is able to take that on and then in some way give something back acknowledging the reception of the gift. And the result of that is a covenant, a contract, a bond, and a relationship forms around that. Um, now, let me give you, I want to give you two examples of a lot that we could do, but out of the uh, Old Testament, before we look at how it fit into the New Testament. Um, uh, first example, you have, uh, uh, remember that Joseph is sold into Egypt? By his brothers, he goes, he, he is able to rise high into the Egyptian government, collects grain, so then they're, they're able to save the people during the drought. Remember that Jacob uh, ends up bringing all the, his family in, and they, then they find out that Joseph, the, the son, is the one that's administering this. And, and this is how Israel, the tribes of Israel, all end up in Egypt. Now, towards the end of his life, though, Jacob is growing old, is Israel is growing old, um, and, and what he really wants is not to be buried in Egypt. He would like to be buried with the, the bones of his fathers. Uh, remember the tradition was is that they would place uh, a dead person in kind of the sarcophagus along with the bones of their fathers 
uh, and then after the body then completely dissolves away and the bones are left and the bones are actually taken. And they're literally placed with the bones of their, their fathers. He wants to be buried with the bones of his fathers. Uh, and so he's going to he's going to ask something of um, Joseph and he's going to use the the Hebrew Han or Han. It's actually Han. Spelled it wrong. I hate it when I do that. Hen. And and here it is at the end of Genesis, and he says, and it says this. And I think this is. Uh, I wish I'd wrote this down. S- somebody out there is going to f- go, well, how come he didn't tell us the reference? I think it's like Genesis 28:29. And the time drew nigh that Israel, Jacob, must die. And he called his son Joseph, and he said to him, now listen closely, because he's going to draw on this principle. If now I have found grace... If, if the things that I have done to you, father to son, remember that coat of many colors, the covenant coat that he gives? If I have found grace in thy sight, if I have graced you and you received what I gave you, put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh. It's a sign of the contract. That's how they would recognize that a contract is happening. There is a promise being created here. Uh, Put thy hand under my thigh and deal kindly with me. Um, And then he's he's going to say, um, bury me not, I pray thee, in Egypt. Now, that is Han. He's saying, um, I gave you As your father, I gave you a number of gifts which you then received, like the coat, like my love, like my support. If I have found, if I have extended grace to you, then ultimately, according to our bond and our covenant, I now need something back from you. I have a right to ask f- for something from you. And in this case, he's saying, I need to get from you a special favor. Don't bury me in Egypt. <laughs> I don't want to hang around with the pharaohs and the pyramids. Uh, take me home. And you remember as they're coming through the Red Sea and all that, they're carrying the bones of Jacob so that he can be buried uh, with his fathers. Okay, That's a perfect example. Now, let me, let me give you one other one that I think really demonstrates uh, grace as seen in the Old Testament and the three-step process that's involved here. And that is the relationship that God has, Yahweh, Jehovah, has with his people. I will make you my people, he says. I'm going to covenant with you that you will be my people. And here's the gift. He says, if you will do that, I will fight your battles. I will be your God. 
You will be my people. What a great set of gifts he's giving him. Now, if you receive that, here's what, here's what I need from you coming back. I need your loyalty. I need you to not chase after foreign idols. Don't go into idol worship like Baal or Egypt. I need you to take care of my poor. All of those were things that this, this benefactor, this heavenly benefactor operating on the basis of grace was going to require from the receivers of grace. I will do things for you you can't do for yourself. What I need you to do is a couple of things that I need. I need you to feed my poor. I need you to not uh, wander off after idols where you will get lost and you will get hurt. I need you to, we say this to our little kids, I love you, I care about you, I need you to not run out into the road. Okay? So sometimes this, this Han, this benefactor, receiver was more equal maybe between kind of equal parties but oft times there was a mag there was an incredible gap incredible gap between the the uh, patron the benefactor and the receivers and sometimes the best a receiver can do is I just need to be I, I need loyalty and love back back in return and that and as, as you provide that and as I respond as best I can this way that is going to create a contract a covenant that binds the two together in eternal love and that was the understanding now as we know Israel kept breaking this contract breaking the bond and as a result they were destroyed and scattered uh, a couple of times ultimately and to this day still mostly scattered because that was a hard concept uh, for them to embrace. Now, we're on board so far, so far with all of this? Okay. Now, let's take a second now and, and look at Grace, the way that Paul understood grace. Uh, Paul uh, being uh, raised in Tarsus, that was a Roman colony, but steeped in Greek mythology and Greek thought and Greek philosophy. Uh, and they would have understood grace very powerfully. Um, again, the idea of grace... Borrowing, I think, from Han, uh, the the term grace in in Greek thought, uh, I'm going to call it charis. It's actually charis, charis. I got a guttle, charis. Um, but I'm going to call it charis because it's easier on my throat. Um, and this idea of charis then was believed by the Greeks all, all the way back as ancient as you want to go as the, 
the basis by which their society functioned and formed and survived. Charis was the presiding principle that led them from kings to a city-state and a republic and, and a sense of relying on each other. Uh, and it's that republic uh, that the Romans then borrowed. Uh, the founding fathers of the United States also grabbed the idea of the ancient, what the Greeks were saying about this reciprocal, we're going to do things for one another kind of thing, and that's going to be called grace. Um, now, Charis. Let me get to um, um, if we go, go all the way back to Aristotle. Here's Aristotle's quote. This is a letter attributed to Aristotle, and he declares and he declares this: giving and returning, the giving of the patron to somebody, and the patron returning the thing that they can to the extent it's not free. There's a, there's, you have to give something back here. The giving and returning is that which binds men together in their living. As some give, others receive, while others again make a return gift for that which they have received. Maybe the best way to understand that, um, that idea um, wasn't that long ago that, uh, well, I'll go back even further. When Cindy and I were first married, uh, my extended family did a wonderful thing for us, and that is my aunts and uncles and cousins uh, had a grocery shower for us. And that meant that we, sh we showed up, and instead of getting kind of kishy little gifts, we got bags of flour and bags of sugar and uh, boxes of macaroni and cheese. And I think we got like 50 pounds of sugar by the time we got done, and about another 100 pounds of flour. Uh, they were giving groceries and gifts to us. Um, to, to the things that we didn't have as newlyweds, they were going to be our benefactors and they were giving us this, this wonderful set of gifts. Now, when we got done, after we got married, first of all, on that night, we expressed our gratitude. That's the step three, the gratitude coming back. But also, we recognize it was important that we write thank you notes. So our thank you notes are going back to them. That's the return gift. It, now, a little uh, time spent writing a thank you card doesn't even come close to matching 100 pounds of flour. Our return gift is often pretty paltry. But the fact that we are receiving something of value, we graciously accept it, and then we give whatever we can going back, is what formed the continued to form the bond and connections and contract and covenant between giver and receiver is the return gift. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of maybe helping somebody move uh, and you and it's a Saturday morning and you're going to sacrifice of your time and so you show up to help somebody move. Uh, a, uh, they're not that pleasant. B, they haven't packed anything at all, uh, and and see, they just kind of grumble about the way that you're doing it. 
Um, and I don't know if you ever had a, kind of walked away from that experience and go, I was just trying to help. And they're just throwing it back in my face. I can't believe it. Um, and, and, and you watch a gift given but not graciously received and certainly nothing coming back. Well, the bond relationship doesn't form because not all three elements are there. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay. Um, and, and for the ancient Greeks, the idea of grace, charis, was the underlying principle that everything ran on. Grace was so important that on top of uh, the Acropolis, up, up in the uh, Parthenon, um, there and, and, and a lot of other places um, was the, um, and I know that you're not going to see it very well, it's on the, I put, but I did put it on the PowerPoint. There are the three graces, generally three girls, uh, oft times nude, um, that are kind of holding on to each other. They are the three graces. And they inspired Greek um, society, and they were loving kindness, and they were fertility, and it's just we have been graced by this. Okay, that's grace. That's the world Paul swam in. So uh, let, let me put it in a couple of contexts. Um, first of all, grace, charis, the idea of charis in a Greek society was the fact that we will form relationships and bonds because I have something you don't have. Maybe I have bread. I'm going to give that to you. You're going to receive that gratefully. And maybe you respond by giving me milk. So at a, at a local level, it's kind of a bartering kind of thing. But you can't really barter with uh, a king. The king has everything. You have very little. What gift can a king give? Well to his subjects or servants or the peasants or the poor, what can a king do? A king can provide an army. A king can provide the power to build strong walls to keep uh, attackers out. A king might be able to provide certain things, land, for instance. And so Charis there between the rich and the poor was how a patron or a king would provide a gift to receiver that is able to then receive things they didn't have like safety. And in return, all a king was usually asking for was loyalty and love, sometimes a tax coming back, but, but it was the return gift that formed the bond. That's the connection. One step more beyond that, and this is where this really, I think, begins to come home in some sense for Paul, uh, was the, the pantheon of gods that the Greeks worshipped, and then, of course, then the Romans also kind of subsumed in there as well. Think about, uh, at, at the moment, as we are kind of virus-infected, Part of what we don't know is the unpredictability. Where does this strike next? What's going to make it bad or worse? 
Uh, when does it stop? What will it look like by the time we get done? There's so many unknowns. Uh, and, and that creates kind of an anxiety in us because we don't know really what's coming next or what will fix it or what's the thing after that. Uh, will we ever go sit in a movie theater or sit on a plane next to somebody um, without feeling like we got cooties? Um, for the ancient Greeks, there was a lot of unknowns as there was for all the people back then. They were dependent on the rains coming down. They were depending on the flooding of the Nile at certain times. They were dependent on, on luck or whatever that their women would get pregnant or be fertile. There were so many things that they couldn't control. They had this great need. Who could supply those needs for them? Ah, ah, the gods. So each one of those gods then had certain power uh, and abilities that could provide for them uh, the things that they didn't have and be able to, to kind of make up that difference. This is why, for instance, that when Paul rolls into uh, Ephesus and he spends two years working out of a... Um, a rented house and he's preaching the gospel and over time Demetrius the silversmith and others begin to get worried about what's happening here uh, and you recall that ultimately he stirs everything everybody up and there as we've talked about there are thousands pouring into the theater in Ephesus that sits up there on on the hill uh, and they're and they're calling out uh, as one almost like a soccer crowd going out, Migas Artemis Ephesion <laughs> Migas Artemis Ephesion Great is the God is Artemis, the God of the Ephesians Well, why was that important? Well, if we're, we can look at it and go, well, he just was afraid it was going to affect his business You know, it was a whole business thing Okay, yes, true But Beyond that was, you may really tick off the Romans, and we may have legions marching in here because it looks like we're throwing off the Julius Caesar cult as well. So we're a little worried about somebody's going to attack our gods. But more importantly, think about what they were doing. They would go to Ephesus. They would buy uh, Demetrius uh, little silver replicas of Artemis. Um, they would take this home, they would give it a place of honor in their house, they would pray to her with the idea that says, please grant us something we can't do for ourselves, and start thinking about the fast we're doing on Friday, because there's some parallels here. We have needs that we can't take care of ourselves. We're going to uh, we're going to honor her. She's going to give us fertility. She's going to give us blessings. She's going to make my, my wife be able to be pregnant. She's going to make sure there rains in the season when we need it, that our cops are going to grow. In return, I will do the one thing that I can is that I will honor her. We will pray to her. Um, in Israel, they used to do the same thing. Uh, female deity of, of baking cakes 
I'm, I'm, I'm honoring her. I'm doing that kind of thing. Okay. Um, so I'm going to somehow, it's, it's this return process. And it's the return that then I have a bond and a connection with Artemis. She is great. She's wonderful. She loves me. I love her. And as a result of that, we all win. Uh, she gets our honor and love and respect. Uh, we get to have kids. And the rains come when they're supposed to. And my business thrives. Uh, we're all winners here. That process is called grace. That process is grace. They saw it as grace. It was charis. And that charis grace is what everything uh, ran on. So, so now we get to um, now we get into Paul's writings. Paul is steeped in the idea of charis. He is. Charis means that connection and it would have been easy for a for a uh, Pharisee like Paul, who is steeped in that, uh, we, we don't want to offend Yahweh, to then understand, uh, the, the, when he understands the risen Lord, now he understands grace, and grace, charis, in his world, involves this covenant that exists between man and God. In Galatians 2, he's going to write, um, When James, Cephas, Peter, and John, it's Galatians 2.9, who seem to be pillars, they seem to be the ones that were in charge here, perceived that grace, the grace that was given unto me. Let me say that again. So when Peter, James, and John, who seem to be pillars, Saw the, saw the grace that had been given me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship. In other words, what he's saying is, they could see that I had received grace. What did that mean? That I had had a vision on the road to Damascus, that Jesus had spoke to me, that he had, he had given me grace, meaning I had received a gift uh, the the uh, forgiveness of my sins, that I had recognized that I'd, I had faith in His um, atone, atonement that happened uh, during that uh, last week, the Holy Week, that I recognized that He had been resurrected for the world. I had received that grace, that that gift of faith, that gift of understanding of the greater gift. Of, of my salvation. I've been saved. Now, as soon as they saw, he says, as soon as they saw that I had received grace, what do they do? They give me the right hand of fellowship and say that I should go unto the heathen. In other words, I have received, number one, I've received something from God. I have received a gift. Uh, I have. Uh, I now know it. I know who he is. And the return gift is that I am to serve. And there are certain things that are going to be required of me in the service coming back. Prior to my service, what else is the Lord requiring? 
uh, the, the Lord said, okay, on the road to Damascus, uh, you now know who I am. It's hard for you to, uh, why are you persecuting those that are prodding you to do something different? What do you need to do? Well, first of all, this, this coming back process says, number one, you have to witness to the other bodies of believers that you have gone down into the grave with me and come out. You have, and, and part of that then is this coming back says you need to be baptized. That will, that will demonstrate to believers publicly that you have, that you have joined the body of saints. Uh, Alma says it this way in Mosiah. Remember he says, uh, if you are willing to mourn with those that mourn, comfort those that stand in need of comfort, then what of you against being baptized? In, a, in other words, if you're willing to accept the gift that was given to you, you, and you're willing to join a group of believers that will take care of one another, then witness that by baptism. And so what he's saying to Paul is, you need to witness that you have joined uh, my people, you have come into the covenant that I'm giving to my people by being baptized. And and Paul in going forth is going to do, he's going to go forth and we're going to see it over and over and over. In, in uh, uh, Romans, I think he uses the word grace 39 times. <laughs> he, he understands what grace is. Uh, and that, so, he, so Paul would say, um, how are we saved? He would say, very easy. We are saved by grace. Grace has saved us. What does grace mean? Grace is a contract. Grace is a covenant between man and God, he would say. That his salvation has come to us. He will transform us. And not by any works should any man boast. My works will never save me. But in order for me to fully accept his grace, then they're going to be required things that I need to do for other people. Uh, that, and baptism is just one of those things. Um, and, and at one point, Paul will say, uh, I have been saved by grace, uh, and I work harder than everybody else. Um, the idea is that Keeping the commandments are those things that demonstrate the grace received um, and that change and grow him. Remember that we keep the commandments as a way to teach us love and to help transform us into beings that can live with him. Now, as we, as we kind of go down the road uh, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk more about how uh, his understanding of grace as a contract, grace as a covenant, between God and man goes back and forth uh, and elevates uh, and lifts and exalts. Now, when we look at it, um, ultimately, and, and uh, we're going to kind of wind down, I've got, uh, I've got a couple of other points on, on the PowerPoint that I'll probably extend into next week's uh, class, uh, and we will do. And we'll, we're going to do this again. If this turns out well and this hasn't been too weird, um, 
we'll go ahead and, and uh, repeat this next week and probably through the end of the semester. Um, so let me, in the, in the time that we have remaining, let me bring it down to us. If you listen, this is the great, this is the bridge. This is the bridge between those that believe in faith and those that think it was about works. And we begin to see that uh, grace, the contract, embraces both. Grace is the understanding that we are saved by faith. We are saved by grace. And that the return gift is required uh, to cement the relationship and the contract. Um, so, as I was just kind of quickly looking through it, and I thought, okay, as, as uh, believers, what's our return gift? If we understand during this Holy Week that a gift was given beyond our power to understand it or beyond our ability to end, begin to pay back. Uh, as uh, several authors have said, Second uh, Nephi uh, talks about the fact that we are saved by grace in spite of all we can do. Elder Bednar clarified that. Uh, we are saved by grace in spite of all we can do. Uh, the translation department uh, in a recent podcast I was just listening to, the church's translation department is they're sending that scripture off to a lot of other languages. That's exactly what they're now saying when they translate that verse. It's going to say we are saved by grace in spite of all we can do, not after. But what's required of us? Uh, real quickly, I put down this. Um, our responsibility in this grace relation covenant. We're to believe and have faith on the Savior, His suffering, death, and resurrection. We have to build that faith inside us. Um, we are to witness to the world that we have joined with His believers through baptism. It's a public... Um, recognition that we are we're going to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those standing in comfort okay now what else is required of us we learn how to we learn how to love and serve as we keep his commandments that the process of learning love is a process of keeping his commandments keeping the commandments doesn't save us but it sets us up so that his spirit can lift us cleanse our sins and transform us um, as uh, elder as president oaks has said eloquently it makes it so that we're not saved by what we did we are going to be saved by who we have become grace makes us who we will become and changes who we are so we become new creatures in christ um, so that's so again as we do so his spirit and grace will cleanse us uh, and transform us uh, to become more like him so that ultimately we are comfortable living in his presence that we can partake of the divine nature uh, and be able to live with him what does that look like after this life we have no idea we have no earthly idea literally uh, what that will look like uh, what that pretends um, but it's our job then as part of this receiving back to also then accept his gifts now one of the greatest gifts he can say is kind of the gift of exaltation and he says I'm going to give you a place and, and, and a way for you to receive all of that part of what he's now give, that gift is 
I'm going to build for you a temple. And in that temple, I'm going to give you a gift. We'll call it an endowment. And, and part of receiving that endowment is us receiving by covenant certain commitments, things that we will do in order to receive that endowment of power. That the entire endowment as we do it in the temples, uh, uh, in our Latter-day Saint temples, is grace. That is grace personified. The giving of the gift, the taking on of covenants, and then making covenants to walk out of those doors and do certain things and be certain people on the other side and witness to the world the good news. The good news is that grace happened. That grace is available. The good news is that grace is given, but it's not free. Grace is that process by which we enter into a covenant with an exalting, loving Heavenly Father and, and a Savior that can lift us and change us and make us into somebody that we weren't previously. We don't have the power to do it ourselves, lest any man boast. We're not saved by works. We're not even saved by our obedience. We're saved by the grace and love of the Savior. But that grace is going to require things of us that keep us in that, on that covenant path that leads back to Him uh, that, that then moves us forward. Brothers and sisters, I have such a testimony of the power of grace that as we read the Apostle Paul, you're going to see his growing understanding of the power of grace and what he's trying to teach the people in Corinth and Ephesus and Rome to understand how grace will lift them and change them. But he's going to do it in a Greek context that they will understand the, those sitting in Rome. When he talks about grace, those people sitting in Corinth, when, he's, when they're hearing a discussion about grace, they're going to understand immediately a three-part process of giving and receiving and return gift that will change and create a relationship that can save them. Hoshana, Hoshana to God and the Lamb is going to be what, what they're literally going to experience what they did outside the gates of Jerusalem so many years ago bear you my testimony that the Lord intends us to have grace that he wants to fill us with grace and that by doing so that we will become like him and be able to live with him and I leave that with you in Jesus name Amen